0: If you are visiting today, we make it our practice to teach really verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we started Matthew a a number of months ago, and we are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And today the topic is… are you ready for this? Marriage, sex, lust, and adultery. You're like, we are so glad this is the day we visited. So, uh, that that is our topic for today. Uh, Obviously, it's hard to find a topic that is more urgent and important in the world we live in and with the sin that we struggle with. And so, Jesus has very helpful, clear, and direct words for us on this uh, extremely important subject I'm going to go ahead and read the passage for us, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30, and we're going to spend a few weeks on these verses and the verses following on divorce in the coming weeks. Matthew 5, verse 27, this is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray briefly together. Heavenly Father, with this important and challenging passage. could even feel a little awkward at times. God, I pray that You would confront us with Your Word and do surgery on our heart in whatever way we need it in this passage, and that You would give us the great hope and freedom that comes only in the gospel of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this day and age, obviously, no one seems hesitant to talk about the issue of sex It is everywhere you look, and young children are being discipled in this topic through social media and random influencers on social media and these kinds of things. And so, if there's ever a topic that the church should be clear on, should be, I hope, biblical and helpful on, this topic certainly would be in that group of extremely relevant and important issues that we need to discuss. Let me just remind you real quick what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to chapter four. And just remember what precedes the whole teaching Jesus gives here. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I want everyone to hear this clearly. Before we get to anything in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand what precedes the entire sermon in the mouth of Jesus, which is not perfection. He doesn't come into the world to save the righteous those people don't exist. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's the same reason you send a doctor not to the place where everyone's healthy. You send the doctor to where everyone is sick because that is the, those are the kind of people who need the help of a physician. Jesus comes and says, listen, I'm not coming to save perfect people. I'm coming to save people who know that they are so sinful down to the core that they desperately need salvation from outside of them, and they are people who will turn from their sin in disgust and turn towards Christ with joy and put their faith in Him. And then the sermon begins, chapter 5, verse 1. "'Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when He had sat down, His disciples came to Him, and He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth.'" This message begins with brokenness over our sin. This begins with spiritual poverty. I don't have what it takes. God, please be merciful to me. So let's keep the context in mind. Pastor and writer Sinclair Ferguson has said about the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Jesus' message began with repentance. In a word, the message of the Sermon on the Mount is this. This is what it means to repent and to belong to the kingdom of heaven. The sermon is a description of the lifestyle of those who belong to Christ's kingdom. Do you understand? So, Christ finds us in our sin. We repent of our sin and trust in Christ and His work for us, His salvation, His forgiveness, and then His Spirit moves into our life. And the Holy Spirit is the omnipotent Spirit of God. And when God moves into your life, by God's glorious grace, things begin to change. Things begin to be rearranged. Our loves begin to be reoriented to what they are supposed to be. We stop loving the things of this world as much as we once did, and we begin to love the things of God more than we ever dreamed possible. And piece by piece, from glory to glory, as we are transformed, we become a little more like Christ day in and day out. And this sermon shows us what the character of a genuine believer looks like. Hold your spot and turn to the right to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. While you are turning there, I believe Jesus in this part of the Sermon on the Mount is responding to common misunderstandings of the Old Testament. And we'll see these as the weeks unfold. But do you know what religious, and I mean religious in the negative sense, do you know what religious people tend to do with the Bible? We tend to practice something called selective morality. What this means is we edit, tweak, and massage the words of Scripture so that we take the sharp edges off of what God is saying, and we make the Bible actually something that we can almost obey in our own strength and power because we're really religious and we can pat ourselves on the back and we're good Pharisees and we can can get this done. And Jesus' goal in this part of the Sermon on the Mount is to take the commands of God and say, if you think that you've perfectly kept the command not to commit adultery your whole life, you've misunderstood the command. This command should devastate you, and then there should be a transformation that follows. Just to give a couple quick samples, I won't read all of these texts. Chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus also… This is Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, the Pharisee stands, look at the middle of verse 11, and he prays like this, God, I thank You that I'm not like other men, extortioners unjust, what's next, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you understand what the Pharisee in this parable is doing? He looks at the command, the seventh commandment of the ten. He looks at number seven, don't commit adultery. He says, kept it, check. I've never slept with another woman. I've been faithful to my wife. Never have I violated this command. And Jesus says, this guy is so full of himself, he's not even right with God. He goes home not justified, not in right relationship with God. The other man who's made his life exploiting people, lying and stealing their money, that's what the Jewish tax collectors in this time period were regularly doing like a Zacchaeus. They exploited people, lied, took money. He's lived his whole life worshiping money, exploiting his fellow Jews. He comes into the temple broken over his sin. He doesn't feel worthy to lift up his eyes to heaven. What does he say? God, I've got nothing to give you but my sin. Can you please be merciful to me? He reaches out in desperation to God. And what happens? Jesus says he goes home in a right relationship with God, justified, declared righteous by righteousness not his own, but Christ's righteousness. And the other man who's so full of himself with pride, he goes home not in right relationship with God. Look at the rich young ruler in verse 18. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, why must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you hear the problem in the question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And He said, Oh, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, He said to them, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow Me. What is Jesus doing? He throws a number of the Ten Commandments at this young man, and the young man hears adultery and the others and goes, no, yeah, no, I've checked that box. I have never violated those commands. And you can imagine the, the grief and the love on the face of Jesus as He looks back at this young man who just does not have a clue what those commands are about. So let's turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Do you understand now the audience Jesus is addressing a little better when it comes to the command of adultery? He's dealing with people who generally think, I'm doing that. I'm obeying that command. I'm good. I've got that taken care of. That's the audience He has in mind. And Jesus, let's read it again, uh, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I don't know about you, but when people speak about Jesus in our culture, I don't know that they are really reading what Jesus actually says Do you hear how blood earnest, how intense the statements are of Christ regarding the battle with lust? On July 20th, 1993, Donald Wyman was clearing land near Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania as part of his work for a mining company, in the process a tree rolled onto his shin causing a severe break and pinning Wyman to the ground. He cried for help for an hour, but no one came. He concluded that the only way to save his life would be to cut off his own leg. So he made a tourniquet out of his shoestring and tightened it with a wrench. Then he took his pocket knife and cut through the skin, muscle, and bone just below the knee and freed himself from the tree. He crawled 30 yards to a bulldozer. He drove the bulldozer a quarter of a mile to his truck, then maneuvered the standard transmission with his good leg and a hand until he reached a farmer's house one and a half miles away with his leg bleeding profusely. Farmer John Huber, Jr., helped him to get to a hospital where his life was spared. How many people today talk about the battle with lust like Jesus does. If my right eye is causing sin. If my right hand, Jesus will also, also speak of the foot, if your foot is causing you to sin. He speaks in hyperbolic language. Of course, Jesus does not mean self-harm, self-mutilation, or anything like that. There have been people who've tried to take these words literally in church history. That's not what Jesus is saying. As I've heard it said, if, if you're looking with lust with your right eye and you gouge it out, you can still look with your left, okay? He's, this is not literalism here. He's not speaking that way. What Jesus is saying is this, dealing with sexual sin is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. To completely give up on the battle with lust and to unrepentantly live in a lifestyle of rampant and unrepentant sexual immorality is the mark of someone who does not yet know the Lord Jesus in a saving way. It is the mark of an unbeliever, and it ultimately leads to the lake of fire. The battle with lust is a matter of eternal life, and eternal death. And Jesus says, even good things in your life that are a cause of struggle and sin in this area are not worth keeping if it's going to cost you your life. When this man was pinned to the tree, I'm sure he valued his leg as much as you and I do. Didn't want to give that up very easily, but he knew at this moment he could keep his leg and lose his life, or what? He could lose his leg and keep his life. And we need to be thinking as we walk through this message, what are things in our lives, whether they be neutral or even good things, that we need to deal with drastically in order to win this battle with lust and with sexual immorality. Now, I'm going to back up now to a big picture, and I've got more than one week to talk about this, so there's just a lot to cover. Uh, let, me, let me go big picture for the first few uh, moments here, and I've got three points to the message. Number one, what is the purpose of marriage? Marriage and this will be very succinct, uh, relatively short, what is the purpose of marriage? Number two, what is the purpose of sex within marriage? And number three, how should we respond? So number one, what is the purpose of marriage? You say, well, this text isn't really about marriage per se. Well, it is because we as Christians have to be the people who cannot talk about sex without talking about marriage. We cannot understand what sex is for without understanding the good gift of marriage and sexuality and how they go together. Let me just mention three things, and there's more to say, and there's nuances to this, and there's there's hours' worth of things you could say. I'm going to go very quickly with these three points about marriage. Number one, marriage, uh, its purpose is given for companionship. You see this in Genesis 2. The Lord looked at Adam and said, poor guy, He's by himself, he's never going to make it. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, fit for him, corresponding to him, the complement of him. Later in Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God has made the, the relationship of marriage for deep friendship and deep companionship. Now listen, let me just say, I always need to say this when I talk about marriage in this setting. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is crystal clear that there is a valid and legitimate gift in Christianity called the gift of singleness or the gift of celibacy. Paul himself had that gift. The guy who tells us about as much about marriage as anybody in the Bible was a single man, okay, the Apostle Paul. Okay, Ephesians 5 was written by a single man. He had the gift of celibacy, which is a contented singleness. He was able to to navigate that, and that is a gift from God, and it is not something to ever belittle. It is a minority of Christians who have that gift, but it is a real gift. Paul says, however, if you struggle with sexual temptation and sexual morality, you don't have the gift of singleness. You need to pursue marriage when, when that is going to be possible. But companionship is a legitimate and major part of the purpose of marriage. Number two, procreation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, I, I, I need to give caveats here again. Obviously, there are some who are unable to have children. This is in no way belittling those couples who go through the struggle of infertility. That's not what this text is saying. But the normal and natural consequence of marriage is being fruitful and multiplying, and that is God's normal intent for marriage in this world. Point number three, purpose of marriage is illustration. So we have… Um, you may recognize some wording here from Votie I've borrowed a little bit here. But companionship, procreation, and illustration. Now, if this is really familiar to you, just… Listen like you haven't heard this in a long time, okay? Just let this be fresh in your ears, from Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her. The world does not have this ultimate purpose for marriage. And it is glorious and it is good. The ultimate purpose of marriage, and I wanna be careful here, is not about staying in love. I hope you stay in love if you're married, okay? You're like, does he say, no, no, I, I, all for staying in love. That's great. If you have warm feelings for your spouse, I hope that those increase and those, I hope you work to increase those affections for your spouse. But listen to me staying married is not about staying happy, it's not about staying in love. It's not about, oh, I felt one way one year, but I don't feel that way this year. That has nothing whatever to do with why people are called to remain in a marriage. The the reason we are married is to illustrate to the watching world the unimaginable love of God for us in Christ. And Now, listen here. When the Bible says things about God through analogies, like I'm the good shepherd, it says something about us, sometimes not very complimentary about us, because when it says God is the good, you know, Jesus is the good shepherd. What does that say about me? It means I can't find my way to water, and I walk off cliffs very easily. That's what it says about me. Okay, we're, we're a bunch of dumb sheep walking around, and we need we need your rod and staff to guide me, or else I'm in big trouble walking through the valley of the shadow of death without my shepherd. But when the Bible says other analogies, sometimes they are so mind-boggling. You want to ask the Lord are you, reverently, you want to say, are you being serious when you say this? And the Lord says, I am being 100% serious. The Bible says that Christ is the groom. Do you know what that says about his people? I mean, we've had marriages here where the bride comes down the aisle, and everyone stands as they should, and she's just radiant with beauty, and every eye is on her. The guy, it's kind of like, wow, whatever. But look, look at the bride coming down the aisle. Although we do like to glance at the groom just to see his face, don't we, during those moments? At least I do. I I enjoy that, to see the the tear being kind of fought back. Don't do it, don't do it, and then the tear comes down. Uh, I don't blame him at that moment. But what, what I'm saying is unimaginable to me is what God says about His people. Sinful, wretched, wicked, dead in sin, God looks down and says, I want them, and I'm going to clean them, I'm going to clothe them in the righteousness of Christ, and I'm going to make them beautiful and radiant so that on the final day, it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're the bride. It almost feels blasphemous to speak like that about us, and yet that's what the Bible unabashedly says. So, the reason marriage exists Is not about staying in love or being happy, although I hope you have those things in your marriage. But the purpose of of marriage is showing the world the covenant keeping faithfulness of our covenant keeping God. You know, is Jesus gonna walk out on us because we're not so lovely today? Is Jesus gonna turn away and divorce us because we didn't have a great quiet time this morning or because we fell into some serious sin? I hope he doesn't play fast and loose with us like we are so often tempted to play fast and loose with one another in marriage. So the, the ultimate goal of marriage is to show the world a powerful illustration of Christ's relationship with, the, with His bride, the church, and that is why marriage exists. Point number two of the sermon, what is the purpose of sex within marriage? Why did God create sexual intimacy in the first place. He could have allowed human beings to have children in some other way, okay? This was God's idea. He is the designer of this. Uh, You know, can I just say, and I don't think we're there right now, but there was a time period where Christians, I think, were actually embarrassed by this topic altogether to the point where I think it hurt younger people because they thought, oh, like, Christians are just embarrassed by the topic of sexuality, and the world seems really happy about it, and so one looks more attractive to me at this moment than the other, and that's deceptiveness, but we should not be ashamed of what God is not ashamed of. Sex is His idea. It is a good gift from God, and in the right context, it is a glorious thing. So, listen, sex is reserved by God for the covenant of marriage, which is the vow of total commitment between one man and one woman until death do us part, right? Whether sickness or health, for richer or for poorer, until death do us part, we are in this together. And Now, this may seem a little bit different, just hang with me here. Sex is the acting out of the one flesh covenant union between a husband and a wife. So when you become, uh, when you you get married, you are pronounced husband and wife, you are one, you are one. But the physical act of sexuality is is an acting out, a a committing of yourself in in a lived out moment repeatedly throughout the marriage that is saying, I am totally and completely yours, you are totally and completely mine, and that is what it is there to do. It's saying that all that I have and all that I am is yours. All that you have and all that you are is mine. Hebrews 13, 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. The Bible exalts marriage. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. But th- this is unashamed. The marriage bed is a good thing. Let it remain undefiled, but God blesses the marriage bed. Scripture is unembarrassed by the goodness of God in physical intimacy and enjoyment in marriage. Let me just suggest, if you've never heard of a book called Song of Solomon, I could read it right now and make some of you probably blush, including myself. Just read chapter 4. You're like, whoa, that's in the Bible? Uh, Read Song of Solomon and see that is a book of the Bible. Now, I know the Puritans… Uh, and I love the Puritans, but the Puritans tended to go, well, I don't think it means what it sounds like it's saying. I think it's just about Christ and the church. And I go, okay, all marriage is ultimately about Christ and the church. But I believe Song of Solomon is about uh, the delight a husband and wife have in one another uh, in physical intimacy. It ultimately points in some way to Christ and the church, but I take it at face value. Read Song of Solomon. God is unashamed of the delight and romance between a husband and a wife. I'm going to read verses of the Bible that don't get a lot of airtime normally today. Are you ready? 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's responding to the Corinthians. In fact, why don't you turn there? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, first verse. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, he's responding to something that some of them wrote. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and they, they had written to Paul apparently this statement, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So there were some people in the Corinthian church who were very promiscuous, others in the church were actually saying marriage and sex is altogether bad, Don't, no one should ever get married. And Paul says, well, not exactly. Verse 2, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does." Now, let me just say there, in the first century, that is shocking to say, because in the first century Roman world, men just did sexually what they wanted to do, and the wives were not allowed to do likewise. I mean, you can read quotes from people like Cicero and stuff, and it's shocking what men did. They just kind of did what they wanted sexually, and their wives were not allowed to do likewise. Here, Paul gives, Paul gives… he points to both and says to the wife, your husband's body is yours. He says to the husband, your wife's body is yours. There should be a mutuality and a love for one another. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another. He means of sexual intimacy. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The, the Bible is not embarrassed about this topic. It actually urges the delight between a husband and a wife within the context of marriage. It should be a regular and recurring thing. I, I don't. This is in no way I'm not trying to be irreverent or anything. I, I mean this actually pretty seriously. In the Lord's table, we are recommitting ourselves to the Lord in this new covenant ceremony, and there's there's a physical, tangible aspect to it where we're recommitting ourselves to the Lord, and we're reminded of what He did for us. Sexuality, although obviously communion is very different, but there's a similarity in which you are recommitting yourself to your spouse when that recurs throughout the marriage, and 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 vice versa in the spouse with your spouse. Um, now, let me explain why sexual sin is so destructive now in this world, and also so dangerous. Eternally, sexual sin is so bad because sexuality in marriage is such a good and powerful gift from God. Do you understand this? It's because it is such a good thing that the misuse of it is such a bad thing. See, there were times in church history, people like St. Augustine, uh, who in many ways was very helpful and in some ways not helpful, but Augustine, you guys remember him, Augustine of Hippo around the year 400? He was a very promiscuous man in his 20s and, 30s, 20s and early 30s. He was radically converted, and then he took almost a monastic view of life where marriage and sexuality was altogether bad, and that influenced a large part of the church for the Middle Ages where there was just a generally, like, it's gross kind of perspective of even uh, marriage and sexuality within marriage. But that's not the biblical position. You may have heard the illustration that sex is like fire. In the fireplace, in the home, it is a wonderful and good thing. But fire, because it is such a powerful gift, when it is removed from the proper context, you go over there and you, you know, you got the little thing, you know, those little prongs and stuff next to your, what are those things called, next to your fireplace, you reach in there, you grab one of those logs that's lit up in the winter, and you throw it on your couch. Okay, now the good thing just became a very destructive thing. And fire's not bad. Fire is really good. We are so thankful that the gift of fire exists, but man, we remove it from its proper context and you will burn the house to the ground. Sex is like that. If we keep it within the restraints and the confines that God has given us, it gives warmth to the home. But if you take it out and you are careless with it, destruction and wreckage and even death follows in its trail. And have you not seen that in your life or with people that you, that you know? Now, this is why premarital and extramarital sex is so destructive. Listen, if, sex, if sexuality is saying, I am totally committed to you and you are totally committed to me no matter what comes our way till death do us part, if that's what the act is saying with your body, if that's what it is saying, then when you take sex out of the fireplace or if you take it out of the context of marriage and you misuse it, do you know what you're doing? Now, let me say, there's going to be gospel hope in a moment, but right now it's going to come down pretty strong, okay, what I'm about to say. When sex is removed from its proper context… You are, if you have sexual relationship with someone not your spouse, or if you are thinking lustfully about them, but especially if you act it out, you are with your body lying in the most intimate and tragic way to this other person, and they are lying to you. You say, how is, what are you talking about? You're lying. You are acting out this covenant renewal that says, all that I am is yours, when in fact, all that you are is not theirs. You haven't signed the legal document. You have not become legally, economically one. Your future has not been promised to one another. You're not one, but you're acting out the act of being one, which means with your whole body you are lying to this other person. 1 Corinthians 6 says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. And then he says, remember, every other sin we commit outside the body, but he who sins sexually sins with his own body, against his own body. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. The idea here is when a a man sleeps with a prostitute, he is doing something with his body that is promising and making a commitment. They're becoming one flesh. It's not real. And it is is a terrible form of being fraudulent. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, See that no man transgress or wrong or defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger in these things. Let me quote a pastor here that I've been paraphrasing. The Bible says, do not unite with someone physically unless you are also willing to unite with that person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way because you have given up your freedom and bound yourself in marriage." Next, sexual sin is especially deceptive for many because of, obviously, the immediate pleasure that it promises. You may have heard Votie say this, but um, the strongest man in the Old Testament, the wisest man in the Old Testament, and the man after God's own heart, perhaps the godliest man in the Old Testament. Who am I talking about? Samson, uh, Solomon, and David? All three of those guys fell big time to sexual immorality. That means it is tempting, and it is alluring, and it is enticing, and the only way, the only way for any of us, sexual sin gets the ascendancy, gets the power in our life, is if we let it, and we only let it when we are deceived by it. Satan is like a great fisherman who has all these different kinds of bait he can put on that, on that hook, and he puts it into the water, and he knows exactly what you're weak in, and what, what areas you are tempted, and what time you're tempted, and what situation in life you're tempted, and he puts that bait right in front of you, and he says, this is going to be so good. It's going to give you life. You feel bored. You feel depressed. You feel lonely. You feel discouraged. You feel anxious. Go for this. This is going to give you what you're missing, and you bite And the pleasure is gone, and now you are hooked onto something that is causing destruction and leaving emptiness and misery in its wake. If it could get Samson, Solomon, and David, it can get you, and it can get me. Do not be naive and do not be deceived about the power of indwelling sin and the power of lust. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. I, the sermon's going to go a little long today. You're like, we're not surprised. Okay, I, I know, hang on. Well, the sermon's going to go a little long today, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. That's part of the reason. I, I want to read this whole chapter, at Proverbs 5, because it is so relevant to this issue, and it's hard to beat. So let me just read, uh, you, can, you can follow along, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1. It's a father writing to a son here. My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. This is the bait. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline." and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin and in the, in the assembled congregation. Now he commands the opposite. Instead, delight in your spouse. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin." He dies for lack of discipline, and because of His great folly, He is led astray. You can turn back to Matthew 5. Let me just say a brief word of application for us who are parents, especially with young children. I don't have any experience with older children, but for younger children, let me just say an exhortation. Not not coming from me. I don't have the expertise on this. I don't have the experience. I'm just referring to Scripture here. It is Listen to me. Studying the doctrine of total depravity and original sin is vital for good parenting. And you say, "Why? That's just doctrinal. It's like just like getting into a doctrinal discussion about depravity. Who cares about that? What does that have to do with parenting my seven-year-old son? It has everything to do. Because listen, if you don't understand, if I don't understand what the Bible teaches realistically about our children being born like all of us, dead in sin, with Adam's sin nature passed on to them. We will be naive and gullible about what our sons and daughters are capable of doing. I could tell you stories of fathers coming into their coming into the room with their son with an iPad and what was happening. I've got all kinds of stories of, of horror stories of what has happened with an eight-year-old son, right? With with a ten-year-old son, I, I could tell you about those in detail. But if we are naive or gullible about the human depra- depraved nature that we all are born into this world possessing, we are not going to parent well because we're going to overly trust our children when they say certain things to us, and before we know it, they're going to be hiding stuff that we don't know about. We must guard our devices, our screens, our internet devices at the home like you would not believe. We must guard them. I mean, 40 years ago, it was a different situation, right? 40 years ago, it was a different situation. Now, everything is so accessible, and it's like I've said before, it's like putting someone who's constantly giving into drunkenness, sitting them down next to a cabinet full of liquor, it's just a matter of time, right? Let's think about technology and how we are to guard our children in those areas, and let us also have a gospel big enough to rescue them when there's failure on the other side. Okay, another heavy section here, and I'm not going to sugarcoat this because it would not be loving to do so. Uncontrolled, unrepentant, habitual, non-stop, I'm-not-giving-this-up sexual immorality, whether it's by yourself or with another person. That is a sign that a person does not know Jesus. And let me give you Scripture. You won't have to turn there, but Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, orgies, and things like these, Paul says… Now, listen, this is in Galatians, the gospel letter about freedom in Christ… So, what I'm saying does not contradict the gospel of Galatians. It's in Galatians that Paul says this. Here's what Paul says. Those who give themselves to sexual morality, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus says, if you don't get serious in the fight, you may end up with two hands and two eyes cast into hell. 1 Corinthians 6 Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who who, who are those people? Don't be deceived. It's going to be so easy to be deceived on this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Does that cover pretty much all of it right there? Premarital sex, extramarital sex, and homosexual sex, all that. People who give themselves to that without repentance, he says here, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then there's a word of hope. You've got to hear the word of hope. Verse 11 And such were some of you, Corinthians, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, point number three to the sermon, how should we respond? How should we respond? Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, how should we respond? You know how in football or whatever, we have like 15 angles of slow motion replay? And something that happens in about one-fourth of one second, when you slow it down, you realize how athletic someone actually is. You're like, how did they get the, what did they just do? And you, you didn't see it the first time, but when you go back and slow it down, you can see the athleticism and the skill that was involved in something like that. Well, Sinclair Ferguson says, think back to when you have failed in this issue, say with lust or sexual sin. Think back when you failed. And slow-motion replay what happened in your heart, where did lies come in, what what were you deceived about, how did it happen for you, so you can slow-motion replay it and figure out where you are weak and how you are particularly tempted and try to prevent that from happening in the future. Look at Romans 13, uh, starting here in verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Do you know your triggers for temptation? When are you most weak? Are there patterns to how you've been tempted in the past? Do you see recurring patterns throughout your life? Look at the patterns, slow motion replay, dissect them, figure out what was going on, and then do what you can to not make provision for the flesh in the future. You know what it's like to make provision, right? You, 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 have, you make it more possible. Not necessarily you do the thing, you make it easier to do, right? You, you, you take down some guardrails, You get rid of a little bit of accountability, you sort of massage things in your life in such a way that you're more susceptible. You wouldn't say you're doing anything, but you're making provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires, its its lusts. What are those things for you, and how can you not make provision for the flesh? You know the, the Joseph story with Potiphar's wife? Listen to this, Genesis 39, verse 10. Remember, she keeps saying, lie with me, Potiphar's wife. Joseph, it says here, and she spoke to Joseph day after day. Just think about that. Temptation every day. Day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to even be with her. It was he obeying the command not to make provision for the flesh? He was putting up guardrails. It's not a sin to be in the same room as this lady, but because the temptation is there, he knows the limits. And he says, I'm not even going to be around you. And the one time he's around her alone, she grabs onto the cloak, as you remember from the story. Guard your eyes. This is obvious. When Eve saw the fruit, she delighted in it with her eyes. She was deceived. Do not love the world or the things in the world. What does John say? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. We must be careful with our eyes. This is obvious. We, we need accountability in our life. And, and for, for many of you, this is probably something you're like, yeah, I, I understand. But let me speak to maybe a minority of people. I don't know who you are in the room. But my guess is, in a room with this many people, there is secret sexual sin going on that no one else in your life is remotely aware of. And you've gotten away with it for months and maybe years. No one knows. You've never been caught. You've been able to hide it very well. And up to this point, things seem to be kind of floating along. I want to tell you, first of all, you are in serious danger. And number two, you've got to tell a trusted Christian friend your struggle. Someone has to know. And that person needs to be someone who loves you, hates sin, and loves the gospel. They've got to love you, hate sin, and they've got to understand the hope and the transforming power and the forgiveness of the gospel. And if you don't have anyone in your life who knows about your struggle, you are in serious danger, mortal danger. You must have accountability. James says… Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, for the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, I'm coming to a conclusion here. Guardrails, accountability, these things are of tremendous importance, but let me tell you something, if that's all you have, you're in in serious trouble. Paul doesn't just say, don't make a provision for the flesh. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So remember, we say this all the time. You can go back and listen to the Romans Sunday schools over the last few weeks in Romans 7 and 8 if you want to hear more on this in detail. Your sin nature and my sin nature has never taken a day off. Your flesh wants to gain the throne in your heart every single day. Your flesh is always working to take control every day. Even if you don't perceive it, it is at work. That's what your body of death does, Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And Paul knows, every time I want to do what's right, evil is right there at hand. It's always wanting to take over. If you think that the sin still dwelling in you as a believer is not that big and not that strong, you are set up for failure. Paul says, careful when you stand firm, take heed lest you fall. So we must be aware of this, but let's, let's get to the really positive aspect The only way to win the battle of this kind of pleasure battle is to fight pleasure with pleasure, to have superior satisfaction in Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the bedrock where the battle takes place. Accountability, yes. Guardrails, yes. All that is great. But without this, everything else is going to be pointless. At bedrock, is there a real fight, the fight of faith? That you are undergoing day in, day out to see Jesus as preferable to all these wicked and tempting things of the world. Not just he's better on a questionnaire sheet. Anybody could do that. Satan knows Jesus is better on a questionnaire, but he doesn't prefer Jesus. Do you prefer Jesus to the things of this world? It could be money in all kinds of sense, but right now, sexual morality, do we prefer… do we have greater joy in seeing God and being pure in heart than having a smudged and, and, and covered view of God and an impure heart? Because seeing God is infinitely better, infinitely more glorious than anything that Satan can, can bait a hook with. Thomas Chalmers, an old pastor, says, the heart of man is so constituted, it's so put together that the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is with the expulsive power of a new and better affection. The only way, it's not just by trying. If you think the the way you battle lust is just by trying, you're going down. It's not going to work. The way you battle lust is the expulsive power of a better and superior satisfaction. When you find greater joy and delight in Jesus than in whatever you're tempted by, that is how you break the back of that temptation, and that fire has to be, has to be refueled day in and day out. Let me, uh, let me wrap up with a, with a quote from Micah. Turn with, me, sorry, uh, turn with me to Micah in your Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, uh, Micah chapter… it comes right after Jonah, I believe, Micah chapter 7. and I don't want to be guilty of taking a verse out of context. I know that this is about Israel and the Assyrians when it's written, but I think that there's a real application to us as Christians today. I don't think I'm misusing this text, but th- this is a great text for when you, we have failed sexually, and John Piper preached a message uh, based out of this a number of years ago. L- listen to these words, Micah chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. What about the person who has failed grievously in this area? Micah 7, verses 8 and 9. This is the people of God after they have sinned grievously. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, His discipline, because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light, and I shall look upon His vindication. If you're a believer in the room who has failed in this area in some way recently, do you understand what it is like to fight like a justified, struggling sinner? Do you understand this? Lord, I have failed. Right now, it feels dark. I I don't feel the nearness of your smiling face. I, I, I feel like I have sinned grievously, and there's a misery upon me. Psalm 32 says, it's like my bones had been broken in my misery when I had not yet confessed my sin. But then he says, no, I'm confessing my sin, and I'm going to stand up. I'm going to rise out of this. The Lord is going to be a light to me, and I'm going to bear God's temporary indignation until he pleads my cause and gets me out of here. And uh, it says here, he will bring me out to light, and I shall look upon his vindication. So as we move into the Lord's table, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup and said, this is my blood given for you, the new covenant for the sins of all who will trust in me, and said, "This, this bread is my body which is given for you, for all who will trust in me and be saved, these elements have everything to do with what we've been talking about for the last number of minutes. Jesus knows that Christians still struggle. Christians still fall into sin. King David was a believer when he did the Bathsheba and Uriah incident. He was a believer, and he was miserable, and he repented, and he wrote Psalm 51 afterwards because, listen. The reason why we can come forward and take these elements and return to our seat and not be incinerated by God's judgment right now for our past failure and sin is because on the cross, when Jesus died, all of your sexual failure, if you've trusted Christ, was placed by imputation on the head of Christ. And God turned His back on Jesus, pouring out His wrath and judgment for all of our failure, and Jesus was crushed under the weight of God's just and holy and righteous wrath. And now, if you trust Christ, there is no longer wrath waiting for you for your past sexual failure. Instead, you have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, and you can stand holy and blameless before Him. Listen, when you walk down the aisle during the wedding supper of the Lamb, the dress is still going to be spotless white because of all that God has done in our life. You are not without hope. And if you're not a believer today, listen, these elements are not for you, not yet. You don't need the elements, you need what they are pointing to, which is the reality of the finished work of Jesus. He will justify you, He will forgive you, and at the end of the day, He will transform you. We may at times still struggle, but He will not leave us in the pigsty with the prodigal son. He will get us out, and He will bring us home to the Father's embrace. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I know that everybody in this room, essentially, has real sexual sin in their past. There is not one of us who can be like the rich young ruler and claim and and be right to say, I've never violated this command, or like the Pharisee in the temple saying, I've never committed adultery like these other people. If any of us is being honest, God, these verses are crushing to us If You judged us by our failure, we would all be cast into the lake of fire. Who would escape? And God, that's what makes us so thankful for the gospel. The gospel is truth that You have raised us from spiritual death, that You have given us an eternal inheritance in Christ, and You have blotted out our sins like a cloud, like a thick and dark cloud. You have taken away our sins and there is nothing left for us to pay. We can simply rejoice in the finished work of Jesus. And God, I pray if anyone in this room has even been contemplating some sin in this area, even as they've been sitting here today or even as they got up this morning, if it was in their heart or mind, God, I pray that they would fling it away, repent, and that they would run into your arms of forgiveness and love and restoration. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.